You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Heidi Maibaum, who is a professor of philosophy and other things at both University of Cincinnati and University of the Basque Country in San Sebastian, and also the author of this book called The Space Within, How Empathy Really Works. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Well, from the title, How Empathy Really Works, you might think that it is a book of psychology or cognitive science, but really, you know, it's a work of philosophy. And empathy has an unusual place in the world of philosophy. I mean, philosophers aren't quite sure what to do with empathy. And some will even argue that it's not a good thing. Legal scholars will say that empathy kind of interferes with blind justice, right? Interferes with the rule of law. But I think what you're arguing is that empathy is not only indispensable and desirable, but it's impossible to actually acquire knowledge of anything human without some sense of empathy. Meaning not just it's impossible to understand others, but it's also impossible to understand one's self. And the ultimate conclusion, I think, is that knowledge is an accumulation of perspectives rather than a dismissal of perspectives. And so adding more and more perspectives, and I guess we'll have to figure out like where you draw the line and the limit, because presumably you can't just accumulate an infinite number of perspectives. But this perspectivist view of knowledge mandates that we engage in empathic practice. And I guess ones can be better or worse at this. And there are people who lack this empathic skill and others who have cultivated it. So there's a lot of really, a lot of really interesting stuff in this book. And of course you draw on philosophy, but also on literature and even popular culture. But I mean, maybe tell us a bit about what is the place of empathy? I mean, you go all the way back to Descartes, of course, and even back to Socrates, but you know, what is the place of empathy in philosophy at the moment? I mean, is the Thomas Nagel perspective where we aspire to the view from nowhere, is that in some sense the, the, the dominant perspective to truth acquisition and I mean, knowledge? I think so, yeah. I think that the majority of philosophers, certainly in analytic philosophy, would lean towards that idea, right? So I've had various kinds of objections to the ideas that I'm presenting that comes from that idea. How can we even communicate with each other if we all have different perspectives and so forth and so on? A lot of these arguments, I think, proceed from almost a sort of transcendental argument. Here is what we think must be required in order to do A, B, or C. Therefore, we need a, something like a view from nowhere. But isn't there also sort of a corresponding trend in some aspects of philosophy or in social theory that say that it's impossible to view the world from other people's perspectives and that it's futile to even try? Yeah. So that, I mean, I think that there are various ways that you can place the book, right? And, and, and one way to look at the book is that it is a response to what I've called the empathy skeptics, right? So people who 
are, are coming out against. I guess there was a tremendous enthusiasm about empathy for a while, right? And now we have the backlash, right? Which is like, not only is empathy not very good, we don't have enough of it, but it's actually really bad. It's bad for all kinds of reasons. So you mentioned the legal argument, but there's, of course, also people who think it's morally bad. And even people who think that it is an encroachment on other people's privacy to try to empathize with them, or even worse, what we're doing is that we're just doing some kind of imperialistic, ableist, or something like that exercise, where we're essentially nullifying the other and imposing our own structures on others. So the book is really trying to say, well, I hopefully succeeding in saying that this is not the case, right? That um, empathy is, as you point out, necessary. It's necessary in part, and I, I think that this is part of the structure of the book, right? In a, in a way, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, well, look, what is empathy? Let's think about what empathy is. And here I'm thinking in particular as perspective taking, taking another person's point of view. But to get there, we have to first understand that we have a perspective that is being changed by taking up another's perspective. Because it, a lot of the arguments against empathy as perspective taking seem to proceed from this idea that if we're not taking other people's perspectives, we are perfectly objective. So we're actually ruining our innate objectivity by taking on the perspective of another. And once you start looking into the details of that, you just see how mistaken it is, right? Other people have perspectives, but I don't. But it's extraordinary how many times you will read that, something along those lines, right? So what I'm trying to do is, first of all, bring home the idea, yes, we all have perspectives, which limit our ability to understand the world, understand ourselves, and understand other people. But I'm also trying to suggest a way forward, right? Because I think there's a way of understanding a perspective as a sort of Weltanschauung, right? Your entire history, your background, all your beliefs. And of course, if that is what is meant by a perspective, then taking on another's full perspective is going to be impossible. To that extent, I think some objectors are correct. But what I'm trying to do is that I'm trying to look at what I call the formal aspect, namely the um, intrinsic subjectivity of having a perspective. And there I'm looking at some of the psychological literature. I'm talking about some of the history of philosophy that lead us to think that there is a structure to how we experience the world and other people that is structured by our own subjectivity, by which I mean something relatively simple, being the one who thinks, being the one who acts, being the center, as it were, of activity. And given that we're all these centers of activities, there is a commonality to the way that our experience is structured. And it is that commonality that we can usurp when we're doing perspective taking. Well, I think it's easy to understand how perspectives can differ when we're talking about the external world, right? So just walking around an, an object and seeing it from different points of view allows us to assemble a more comprehensive view of things. And there's this wonderful image in the book where these two people are sitting at a table on opposite sides of the table. And on the table is the number six or nine, right? depending on where you're sitting. And I think when most people see that, I think they understand, oh yeah, of course, depending on where you're standing, you're going to see something. And I guess that highlights how, as you go through life, 
you see the world in, in different ways. And so th- does that mean that when we're stitching together our subjective experience over time, we are necessarily engaging in some type of empathy because we're looking at our prior selves and, and trying to acquire some perspective that is a blend of our, our prior selves and our current selves? Yes, I think so. Yeah. That's one thing I'm trying to suggest early on in the book, right? I think it's intuitive to think that there is this massive gulf between what things are like for me and what it is like for someone else. And a lot of people say, well, I can never truly understand someone else's experience. And whatever you mean by truly, of course, I'm not really denying that. But what I'm trying to suggest is that there is a sort of privileged experience that we have as thinkers and as actors in the moment where we are aware of our bodily sensations, we are aware of our thoughts, we are aware of our sensory impressions. And that kind of privilege is a moment-by-moment privilege that we have in the moment. That, I think, is one of the wisdoms that came out of Cartesian, you know, I am, therefore, I think, and particular later reflections on it, right? But that also suggests that, in fact, we don't have that the same kind of privilege. Of course, we have memories, but one of the things that we're learning from the memory literature is how massively constructed a lot of memories are. We don't have that same type of privilege once we look back. And particularly if we have gone through anything like a significant change, right? The way that we will view our past selves is going to be more like the way we might view another person, of course, with whom we are somewhat intimately acquainted, right? And the examples that I use is, I mean, I think I'm using James' religious conversion or falling in love, which for a lot of people, you know, falling in and out of love can seem like a rather extraordinary thing, right? Whereas when you're in love, certain things seem a certain way. Once you fall out of love, you're just thinking to yourself, oh my God, how could I have thought or done or whatever, these types of things. But that's just to use an extreme example to get people to have the intuition that there is this rather interesting gap, if you like. And it is a gap that I think we can close or make smaller by empathy, by empathizing with our former selves. And that's what ties our individual trajectory together. We also made this distinction between kind of the field view and the observer view and how different memories manifest themselves in, in, in different ways or when you imagine different activities. And, and it has something to do with kind of the meaning that you ascribe to the, to the activity, right? How are those things different? I mean, even when, when you're just thinking about yourself. I mean, the, one of the standard examples that people use of the difference between what one would call the agent and observer perspective is when people remember swimming often, they seem to have often represent, almost have a visual image, if you like, of themselves, seeing themselves from a bird's eye perspective swimming across a lake. And in fact, I did swim across a, a long lake in Canada. Well, I mean, it wasn't that long, but it seemed long at the, t- at the time, right? And when I think of that, I image the lake and then I image a little dot moving across it, right? And that, of course, is an extraordinary thing because we tend to think that memories are 
coded in the way that we would have experienced the situation. Of course, I can switch, and this is one of the cool things, right? I can switch to thinking, oh, yeah, when I had that break on the sandbank looking at the motorboat that was going a little too close, you know what I mean? Then all of a sudden, I am not seeing myself in the image, but I'm seeing, as it were, the environment as something like I would have experienced at the time. Now, then, of course, the interesting question is, like, why is there that difference, right? And I think that the memory researchers tend to think it has to do with the way that information can be used, right? So when I'm representing myself swimming across this lake, what I'm representing is the distance and the context. Oh, I swam for all of this time across a lake, which wouldn't be as evident in simply, as it were, remembering taking some strokes, for instance, right? So That is, um, I mean, this is a sort of standard example. Of course, it gets more interesting when, for instance, the next day after a drunken night out, you see yourself from the outside telling stupid jokes and looking at the facial expressions, as it were, of the people who are listening to your stupid jokes and so on, right? And there it seems like more one is drawing out social implications. In a way, it's, of course, it's not present in whatever imaging one engages in, but it leads one naturally to ascribe meaning, moral meaning, social meaning, and so on. And so this observer perspective, I mean, this is the perspective that we normally reserve for other people, right? So in that sense, we're viewing ourselves more as others when we assume this observer perspective, right? Yeah. So I'm sort of relying on a variety of different empirical evidence, right? Coming from memory literature, coming from theory of mind literature, coming from social psychology literature. And if indeed it is the case that what people call the observer perspective, sometimes they use different phrases, but it's essentially the, the, the same idea. If there's a unifying element there, we can see how that fits really nicely with other observer versus agent distinctions that people have made in the literature. For instance, the fact that when we're thinking about other people and and their actions, what stand out immediately are their social consequences and the moral consequences, whereas when we're thinking about our own actions, we tend to think more in terms of did we do what we set out to do? Did we reach our aim? Did we do it well? And so in the particular um, example that I gave you about a drunken night, for instance, right, what stands out when you're taking that observer perspective is exactly, well, how do I morally or socially evaluate the situation here as opposed to being in the situation? So when we're evaluating ourselves, we obviously have better access to our interior states. And so we, well, there's a couple things. I mean, one has to do with the things that become salient and they're going to be different from the things that we observe in others. But there's also the moral valence, right? Where we, because we understand ourselves, we are also more willing to forgive ourselves right, (laughs) and and see our, our motivations as pure. So if we cut someone off in traffic, we know that it's because we're distracted, but if they cut us off in traffic, we assume it's because they're jerks, right? Yeah. So switching those around, right, by viewing yourself as from the outside, you might better understand how you might appear from the outside and even, in effect, what you're doing. So I'm suggesting at times that 
to really understand what we are doing, we sometimes have to take the view from outside because we're too willing to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt or to come up with beautiful explanations for why it is that what we're doing is in fact perfectly okay, although if somebody else did it, it wouldn't be. Yeah, and so there are a whole bunch of other distinctions that go along with that. I mean, one I found interesting is that we are more appreciative of the role of intrinsic motivation with ourselves, but when it comes to others, we overestimate the degree to which they're motivated by extrinsic motivations. So we all want recognition, but we think right, that our employees just want bonuses, right? Yeah. And the, and the trick, of course, is like how to combine those two different perspectives, right, into a more coherent view of yourself and of other people, because they are, at least initially, somewhat opposed, right? So how do we combine them? Well, well the other thing I thought interesting is that mapped onto some of the literature I'm familiar with is this idea about warmth and competence, right? And so in the management literature, they say, oh, these are the two most important things. But when we interact with others, we think we're being evaluated more by our competence. But when we evaluate others, we're evaluating them more based on warmth, right? So why is that? Is that because we presume that our warmth is self-evident? Is, is that it? That because we feel an internal sense of warmth, we, we just assume that it's transparent? I mean, I think it may just be more simpler than that. Or perhaps we underestimate the degree to which we ourselves are influenced by the, the warmth of others. Yeah, I think we underestimate that for sure. But I also think a lot of the times, if we are in a situation where we're performing, like for instance, right now, I'm performing. I need to pay attention to what I'm doing. I need to pay attention to what the goal is that I'm pursuing. And I need to try and reach that in a sensible way. So naturally, my focus is going to be there. Then also focusing on whatever warmth I might be imparting might actually interfere with my performance, right? But would certainly slow it down. So I think that one of the things that I'm I think trying to do at various points of the book is that I'm trying to give a, a, a somewhat simple explanation simply in terms of what our abilities are and what our wavelength is, right? So I think that sometimes when we talk about our limitations and we talk about our biases and we talk about many of those things, there's almost like a conspiratorial notion that somehow we have all these intentions that pop out in various ways, this and the other. Whereas what I'm more convinced of is it's just we're limited. And if you think about how difficult many of the tasks that we're engaging in are, it's rather extraordinary that we're able to do all of these things. So I prefer to think of it more kindly. Simply, we're limited, we're doing the best, maybe we can do a little bit better. And and I hope that the book is going to help us to figure out how we can do a little bit better, but we shouldn't thereby judge ourselves from not being somehow perfect and being able to engage in all of these activities at the same time, all the time. Well, you know, oftentimes when we ask for advice, we'll ask people say, hey, you know, if you were me, what would you do? And we'll offer advice and say, if I were you, this is what I would do. But I mean, in a sense, like it's a curious construction, right? Because if I were you, I would do exactly whatever it is that you're going to do, right? I mean, so what do we mean by that? And how is empathy in some sense require some non-identification 
Right. So you use this example from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Which is, like I said, you draw from pretty much uh, from everything from Shakespeare to Buffy. And you also use this example of when you were in your car and there was someone else driving your car. In order for us to understand what the other person is thinking, we have to kind of map it to some degree onto our own perspective. We have to come up with a perspective that's somewhere sitting in the middle between what their situation is and a similar but non identical situation that, that we're faced with. I mean, how does empathy require a, some level of, of distance and, and non-identification? I mean, I think empathy does require identification. I mean, if, if you're thinking, well, you're an empathic person, there would be elements of identification, elements where you're not identifying and so forth and so on. I mean, sympathy, for instance, I think does not require identification, but I think that empathy requires some amount of identification. But the identification is interesting because it, that's why the book is called The Space Between, right? Because what you're trying to do, in essence, I think, is you're trying to map the other person's subjectivity onto your own. That's why you have to find a situation of your own that you have experience with to map that situation on. Uh, but at the same time, of course, you have to be aware of the ways in which you differ from the other person, right? So the example that I give with the road rage, I said, well, no, it's not road rage. What is it? Backseat driver rage, however you would call it, right? Is that it's actually my friend who's doing the empathizing, right? And so she is, she's thinking, why is Heidi angry? I'm driving her car. And then she's thinking, okay, well, let me take her perspective. If she was purely just imagining being in my uh, situation, right, she would imagine be sitting in the seat next to herself, watching herself drive, right, which wouldn't do very much good, right? Instead, she's imagining that somebody that she's in a close relationship to, namely her husband, is driving not my car, but her car, right? So that's the way that the, the switching takes place where you're replacing the, as it were, your personal relationships with the personal relationships with the other person to get the sub subjective experience, right? So having said that, my philosophy training module screams out saying, oh my God, all this feely, touchy subjectivity, blah, 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 isn't this terrible? I think what is important here is to appreciate that our lives and our experiences as human beings are fundamentally shot through with subjectivity, and that is a good thing. Like What matters to us as human beings matters to us because we're agents, because things happen to us, because you know we suffer pain or joy and so forth and so on, right? So trying to get move away from that picture. And that's one thing that I talk a little bit about in the last chapter, I think is just really dangerous because you're trying to abstract away from what makes us human and what makes anything matter to us, right? By getting rid of the subjectivity. Well, you know, I think it was Voltaire who said to understand is to forgive, but I mean, at some level, we need to judge. At some level, we need to evaluate and decide what constitutes proper behavior. To what extent can we combine 
empathy. Is there a limit to empathy? Is there a way to segregate out the understanding from the judging part? Because if you really do inhabit the mind of, say, the perpetrator, then you would then presumably understand all of their self-justifications and, and so forth and say, yeah, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, and I, I could be, I shouldn't be throwing any stones because heck, I, I'm, if I were that person in that situation, knowing what they know and with their psychological makeup, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think with that, you, one answers a lot of big, difficult questions, right? Because sometimes when people talk like that, it's almost like they're deterministic, right? So if you're sort of pretty much determinist and you say, well, whichever person is put in this situation with those characteristics, here's what they would do. Well, we can't have a conversation, but suggest, but suppose we're not deterministic, then in ordinary language and in ordinary interaction, it seems to make sense to say, look, I could have done otherwise, right? So when we, for instance, berate ourselves from having done something, right? Presumably we do that because we have some notion with that we could have done differently. We could have thought more carefully about things, et cetera. And I certainly don't in my own case think that oh, I just couldn't have done differently when I think about everything in my life. So I think that the trick is to, when we're trying to understand why somebody did something, for instance, when we're in a situation where we need to judge whether the what they did was right or wrong or how right or wrong it was, we do need to show some understanding for how they viewed the situation but that doesn't mean, I don't think that automatically leads to, oh, but then everything is okay because they did the best that they could, right? I think it just leads to a better understanding, maybe, of the of how they could have done better, where they went wrong, and so forth and so on, just as I think we often can in ourselves, in our own case, reach the same conclusion by examining more closely what happened at the time. So, yeah, no, I don't think, this is just sort of a way of excusing everybody for what they did, but to judge people more, to judge people fairly. And then, of course, you, there's this one story. I think it was taken from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, right, where someone is engaging in, I guess, peeping tom behavior, and then there's a moment where he thinks he's being observed, and all of a sudden realizes the wrongness of his behavior because he sees it from a hypothetical third person perspective. And so in order to actually evaluate our behavior morally, we, we, we then, you know, need to populate those external perspectives, right? Yeah, exactly. That is something that I do think may be necessary to be a morally responsible agent, that you have the ability to switch from that, you know what I mean? Because usually when we do things for reasons and good reasons from the perspective of our own little universe, right? So you're peeping through the door, right? Because, I don't know, you're a spy or your lover may be in there with another person or something like that, right? And so we're not inclined to see the action the way that another person would see it and, and in what I think is often a morally relevant way. And so I think that's what we do with children when we're getting them to see what they're doing is right or wrong. We're getting them to, as it were, step outside a little bit their own perspective to look at it in a different way. I mean, of course, we just say don't do it or, or you'll be in trouble too. That, that's also effective. But usually one thinks that with full kind of mature moral understanding, it isn't just, oh, I will be punished if I do this, but actually an appreciation that it is wrong of course, it's an interesting question, what wrong, how exactly to analyze that, but wrong in a more substantial way than I will be punished for doing. 
Now, when, when you do that, I mean, it's kind of like stepping into the role of the impartial observer, right? The Adam Smith impartial observer. Towards the end of the book, I mean, you express some skepticism about our ability to ever inhabit that role of the impartial observer. Yeah, so the impartial observer, I mean, my suspicion is that for Smith, it is an idealization to explain certain more difficult questions in moral theory and metaethics. Because, of course, what your impartial observer needs to do is he needs to have access to all the relevant moral facts. And then the question is, well, how are you going to do that purely by stepping outside your own position? So I think that is a problem in itself. But I also think that there is something about this notion of impartiality, somehow perfect impartiality, where you're stepping away from your ordinary human reactions, which may itself be a problem. So I think that one of the things that I'm arguing for in the book is that instead of thinking about the situation from a impartial spectator perspective, suppose we have a conflict between two people, right? We really ought to take the perspective of each person and assuming that we are not personally involved with either A or B, consider our own perspective, and then come, then triangulate, as I say, triangulate between those perspectives. This brings us back a little bit to what we were talking about before, right? Namely, not saying, oh, well, because I've taken the other person's perspective, right? Everything is excused. They couldn't have done otherwise, but rather to fairly understand the situation that they were in, the difficulties that they were facing, the limitations to their knowledge, and so forth and so on. But also, at the same time, be able to see the action from the outside and also from the outside of somebody not directly affected by the action, right? Because I have a chapter in the book that talks a lot about the perpetrator and the victim perspective, right? Where the victim tends to think the action was really terrible. The perpetrator thinks it's maybe not such a great deal and so on. So it's important not to leave it only to the perspectives of two warring parties, but also have somebody who is somewhat disengaged. I don't think that's an impartial spectator yet, because partly because it is still an observer perspective, which isn't entirely objective the way that I describe it in the book. And it is a perspective of a person who is still, as it were, fully endowed with emotions and reactions, human reactions, and so forth and so on, right? Not this idealized notion of blind justice, which, I mean, I like the idea, but I think that if the, the way that it is carried out, out now, right, is that the people who sit and make judgment are assuming that they, by not taking somebody else's perspective, do have this point of view. And that's exactly what some of the work that I'm trying to do in the beginning of talking about it in, in the legal ambit to suggest that actually in law two, empathy plays a really central role because the people who are judging others are themselves bringing into that judgment a perspective that is theirs and not an impartial perspective. Well, and of course, you also talk about the, the role of, of emotion, right? So there is an interpretation of empathy that is very intellectual, right? Where one has to work hard 
to suppress one's own perhaps emotional perspective and think uh, hypothetically about what it's like to be another person. And, And I think you're arguing that's the wrong way to go about it, right? Because to really understand a perspective, you have to understand the emotion that goes along with it because emotion itself is a a perspective. So how does the sort of philosophy of emotion tie in with the philosophy of empathy? So I think that within the last 20, 30 years, emotions have become a a proper topic of study, right? Whereas for a long time, they were ignored. There's some exceptions, you know, Descartes wrote a book on emotions, Sartre did, et cetera. But For a very long time, I think both in public life, but also in philosophy and a number of other academic areas, emotions were thought of as mainly feelings, right? Just emoting something that's fundamentally irrational, something that is best kept under control because otherwise you will have hysterically crying women, which is the worst case scenario and not so terrible scenario as angry men, but you get the basic idea, right? irrationality is a foot once you get feelings into the picture. I think that once people started working on emotions and thinking harder about them, I think there's been a recognition that emotions are probably much more evolutionarily old, certainly a number of emotions such as fear, anger, and have been tremendously useful in keeping us alive. Now, if it was just a matter of us running around foaming at the mouth every time we had a feeling, that would be rather extraordinary, right? So it does seem as if what emotions do is that emotions help us pick out something in our environment that is of immediate importance to us, either our survival or our well-being as social beings. And so emotions give us crucial information. Of course, we can be wrong sometimes about our emotions. I'm not saying that. But emotions contain important information about the environment in a way that is perfectly apt for acting on it. So, you know, when we feel fear, it's not like we sit down and reflect at length about what an appropriate response would be, but we already feel like shying away or defending ourselves, or something like that, right? Now, of course, there's a tremendous difference between the whole gambit of emotions, and there's a big discussions about are there more basic emotions and more culturally specific emotions. But I think in general, we can agree on the fact that emotions motivate us to do things. They uh, are evaluations of our environment, so they give us crucial information when it comes to that. They focus our attention in certain ways, right? So when you're afraid, you don't start thinking about, you know, a philosophical problem, et cetera. You think, how do I get out of this situation that I'm in? And so there's there's a variety of ways in which emotions are much more than feelings. So now suppose you're able to empathize with somebody emotionally. Now, all of a sudden, certain features of the world are going to stand out versus others that are going to fall into the background. You're going to feel a certain motivation that will align with what the other person is motivated to do, etc. So there's a tremendous amount of information that we can derive from a successful act of emotionally empathizing with someone. And I think 
more information than from simply empathizing with a thought or thinking, okay, here is exactly what they're thinking. I think emotions are richer. It just gives us more information and not just, I mean, I think there's important aspects to an emotion, namely from the perspective of closeness with another person, from feeling understood, just seeing that another person is emoting is incredibly important. But I think that there's also all this information that we shouldn't ignore that I think is is really crucial and very helpful for understanding others. And at the, because that creates a perspective of, on the world, right? My being afraid of the dog in the situation is a way of viewing the world that can be captured. Well, for us to understand their perspective then, do, I mean, do we just have to be uh, aware uh, theoretically of how that experience of emotion would affect their perspective? Or do we actually have to experience the fear ourselves? I mean, do we need to open ourselves up to the emotional contagion, right? I mean, that that was a big part of the book, I think, you talked about emotional contagion. And I thought what was interesting about that was that you mapped it on to just the, the general phenomenon of how our perception of the world changes in the presence of of others. And and you didn't cite Zagons, but I, I remember the, the famous Zagons experiment where he, he did this with uh, cockroaches and you put cockroaches around other cockroaches and their behavior changes, their ability to solve puzzles, right, and perform tasks. And so just knowing that there are other people in the room causes you to view things differently, but, but it also causes you to, to feel differently, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing. I mean, there. I have a chapter in the book about that. Some people call it the second person perspective. And it's actually an, an idea that has had a lot of momentum recently, particularly in the thermological tradition. It is something that I'm planning on working on more, right? So I talk a little bit about it in the book. I think it's a really interesting area because it, it is an area where I think a number of different fields come together, but in a way that is rarely done, right? So I actually talk a bunch about psychoanalysis and psychotherapy because there, what happens between two people is really very essential. People talk a lot about it. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into a successful therapy when it comes to those interactions. But in general, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is not very well respected in academia. So what I find interesting is a lot of that literature is completely ignored. And I'm, as it were, risking a certain amount of academic credibility by taking that on. I think it's tremendously important. And what is interesting is that actually there are reasons to think that some of those experience changes are reflected in the brain as well, right? There's some data that obviously can be interpreted in all kinds of ways at this point. But I think that there's a lot of converging data from neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, and, and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that's really worth exploring much more. And I think it's a really hard topic because what happens in an unspoken way between individuals is something, first of all, we don't really have a vocabulary for it, but it's something that I think we don't tend to focus on anymore because we are so hyper-focused on conceptualized ideas and on language and on what people are saying to each other, what the actual words being used. And so I think that there's 
There's a, a lot of interesting research to be done in that area, and it's something that I'm super interested in looking at more. What I'm focusing on mainly in the book is viewing of yourself or another person when you're not in direct interaction with them, because I do think it is in the direct interaction that a lot of these things happen. And a lot of, when I say these things, I think that these are very evolutionarily really old mechanisms, right? And, and that's why our neocortex is like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on there? But so, so the perspective taking that I'm talking about primarily is when you take a little bit of a step back and you think about others or you observe them from the outside when you're a little disengaged from them. Because I do think in interactions with other people, sometimes you come together and there's just sort of a complete union and then you come apart a little bit. There's a little like a harmonica sort of game and interaction, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned that when people are in direct interaction, then there's a, I guess, transference that is made possible that doesn't occur at, at a distance. I mean, most of our interactions now are at a distance, right? I mean, we email with one another. And when you email, I, f I found that now, you know, no matter what I say on email, it's always perceived as the, the, there's no warmth in there, no matter what I do. And I try to throw in a bunch of emojis and it, it doesn't really help. But then again, when you read literature, oftentimes you do experience that empathy, perhaps even for fictional characters, whether it's a memoir or a novel, and you have access to some interiority that you don't often have access to when you are interacting with people in, in person. So, I mean, is there a way to facilitate empathy at a distance or do you need literary talent to make it work? Well, I mean, it, it depends a little bit on what you want from the empathy, right? Because I think that we were just talking about what happens between two people when they're together. And there, I think that there's an interesting sort of almost synchronizing that, well, it depends, right? Sometimes that can be also, it's almost like two magnets, right? Sometimes that can be <laughs> repulsion, right? So you, you know, with certain people, you're never going to get into that state where it's almost like you're catching each other's emotions. You know what I mean? There's a lot of synchrony, as it were, right? On the other hand, of course, you can still transfer emotions that just can be of a less pleasant kind. I think that kind of exchange, if you like, of information and of emotion happens only when you're there with the person. But the empathy that I spend a lot of time talking about in the book is the empathizing with somebody which can take place over distance. Now, I think that to get it right, of course, there needs to be communication, right? When we're reading literature, consuming literature, it's going to be a very sort of one-way situation, right? I empathize with this person who can't, as it were, correct me exactly, you know what I mean, as we move along. Whereas when we are with other people, they can correct us. I can say, oh, I know exactly how you feel, blah, 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 blah. And they say, well, that's not how I feel. And then we can be corrected. I think that if you have the ability to engage with another person and you're, for some reason, empathizing with them or wanting to, then the correct way is to do it as a sort of interaction. So you're not imposing any, well, you are imposing certain things on them, but you know what I mean? You're getting feedback at the same time. 
having said that, I think that there are all kinds of ways in which we can empathize. We can empathize with ourselves in the past, of course, and then we can't have that conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Unless we can find an old diary, then that might be a little bit helpful. I think empathy is many things. And that's partly why I find it distressing to read so many dismissals of empathy, which focuses on it as one thing, right? Either you have to understand the other person entirely, right? Their entire history, their experiences, and so forth and so on. Of course, we can't empathize in that way, right? Or you're empathizing with them as an act of sort of like, I know better than you, and so forth and so on. We're empathizing with people for all kinds of reasons, I think. And and it's important to appreciate that and also to then focus your empathy in the right way, depending on, on what kind of project you're engaging. When you discuss psychoanalysis, you mentioned this idea of the kind of analytic third. <laughs> it's it's a, a imaginary perspective that is inhabits neither of the participants. I mean, is this an idea that could extend to other sorts of relationships, right? People talk about in, in a marriage that is performing at a, at a high level, that there is almost like a perspective that is the, the marriage perspective that is is neither the perspective of either spouse or sometimes there's like the team perspective if you're a sports franchise and people can switch on that perspective do we aspire naturally to that i mean or do we resist that is that sort of a you know our quest for transcendence manifests itself in a desire for that perspective or is that sort of a disillusion of the self that that is is uncomfortable that's that's a really great question I mean, I think it's very uh, individual, right? I think it depends on the person's psychological background, how comfortable or uncomfortable they are with that level of closeness, right? So I think that, A, I think, yeah, we're, we're naturally designed to be receptive to others in that way because that's what helped us to survive in the past. And actually, I mean, I think it's, we tend, as I said it before, we tend to be very focused on language and what we say to each other. But probably the actual words that we use may only be 30% of what is actually being con conveyed when we're with other people. So all of that other stuff is ways in which we're sensitive to each other, right? The way the person holds themselves, the way that they say things and so forth and so on. So we, I think we are naturally designed to be sensitive in that way. And so in a in a psychoanalytic engagement, that's going to come out because of the intimacy of the of the situation. In a marriage, too. I, I like your your question about the transcendence because I do think, yeah, I think that it seems pretty clear that with the general tendency so many people have towards religion and being part of something greater than themselves, right? There is that need. And you can set yourself aside for a moment, at least in, in many of these kinds of engagements, right? So, yeah, being part of a team, sports team, or a musical group, or something like that. And I think my suspicion is that when it works well, it's profoundly pleasant. I, I also do think, however, that I mean, you, people talk about codependence, right? I mean, I think codependence is also a beautiful example of this particular phenomenon. It's just not maybe what we're want to aim for, but it is a beautiful example of how people react to each other and are different with each other in ways that are dysfunctional as well as functional. <laughs>
Well, that could veer into the master-slave dynamic, right, that de Beauvoir talks about. So I guess last question I would have, I think the one of the most powerful insights of the book is that to truly know oneself, one has to cultivate one's empathy because you need to be able to inhabit the perspective of others to see one's self in a, in a comprehensive way. But is there a, a, a limit to, I guess, the number of perspectives that one can accumulate in one's portfolio, right? So if we're trying to understand the world, we want to see it from as many perspectives as possible. But I mean, if you add up all the colors, then you just get you get mud. Is there moderation in all things? Where do we draw the line? Can you Can you have too much empathy? Oh, yeah. I think you can. You could drive yourself crazy with too much empathy, for sure. You become so decentered that you lack a self, I mean, at, at some level? I think that's possible, yeah. I also think that the people who are empathic are more vulnerable to exploitation from others, to gaslighting, perhaps, right? So being empathic comes with dangers and advantages, right? But I think that... If we try to go back to this notion of the shape of subjectivity being how I experience things as the one who acts and who thinks and so forth and so on, then I think that when you then try to understand yourself, taking the perspective, as it were, from the inside, taking a perspective from the outside, as little engaged with yourself as you can be, as it were, and then if you are in a particular interaction with somebody else, the victim or the perpetrator perspective in addition. So I think that one of the things that I don't want to underplay in the book is that, of course, a perspective has content, right? There's a lot of things that we bring to the table given all our experiences. And there's really interesting questions about, well, how do you negotiate that and so forth and so on with other people. But what I wanted to focus on as a, as, a word, as a good start is the shape. If you can just get the shape of the other subjectivity, then you will already get something different, a different way of highlighting or a different way of, as it were, making stand out certain features of your own actions or yourself. And so I suppose my advice would be just this. If you can just take your own perspective, the perspective perhaps of a person who is affected directly by your actions and then somebody who stands from the outside, then that's already going to be providing you with a lot of really useful information. I'm not saying that you necessarily should stop that, that there aren't other things you could do, but I think that would be at the core of getting to a good self-understanding. And I think it's something that is within reach, as opposed to this sort of impossible project of trying to fully understand a, a 60-year-old person with a, a trajectory all of their own. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining me. The book is really a wonderful book. I enjoyed it a lot. It's called The Space Between, How Empathy Really Works. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast, produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.